Good morning. Oh, Lord, help me today. Oh, Lord, help me today. You know that I'm writing a book because I've told you a number of times that I'm writing a book to help people who are hurting from abortion. And today's message um, is going to come around to that. But I hope for those of you who have no touching on abortion in your life that you're going to find a way to, um, to make it personal to you, too. I don't want to be feeling like I'm directing my message at any small part of the congregation. It's really for everyone. You know, um, if that's not the sin that you've committed, I know you've committed other sins. <laughs> so it all grieves God, and you can take and do with it what you will. I do, I do pray that this message is the message, as Pastor said, for the moment to the masses, um, and I do believe it is. Message from the master to the masses for a moment. Yeah, I'm praying that that's what today's message is because it's called a time to mourn and a time to weep. And how many people would have thunk that there would be so much to be mourning and weeping about at this time. But there is. We've been experiencing a lot of death in our community lately and, and hearing about Jim Guckian and everybody else. Um, so Although I'm going to bring it around to other issues, we're going to start today by looking at how the dead were honored in the Old Testament, specifically the patriarchs. I'm going to read you a lot of scripture, and I'm going to tell you where the scriptures are if you want to follow along. Otherwise, just listen to me read it. We're going to start in Genesis with the death of Sarah. And if you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis 23... Genesis 23, we're going to read the entire chapter together. Uh, I'm reading from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which is my sort of go-to version. It'll be roughly the same in any version, so don't worry about that. So let's start with Genesis 23. And I don't hear any heavenly language, so I'm just going to keep waiting. Okay, we got some heavenly language? Some of you don't know, there was Pastor Williams used to say that. He'd say, give me some heavenly language when you come to the passage. He spoke it. That was my poor attempt at island, island accent. Anyway, uh, Genesis 23 reads like this. Now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So I'm going to just stop right there and remind you that we read in Ecclesiastes 3, there is an appointed time for everything. I think I heard somebody this morning, maybe it was out of your mouth that I heard the words, I, I don't know how to deal with all this grieving. So maybe we can get a clue. There is a time for everything, a time for every event under heaven. I'm reading from Ecclesiastes 3. A time to give birth, and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to tear apart, and a time to sew together, a time to be silent, and a time to speak. So we learn already when we see Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and weep for her, he said to himself, this is the time for mourning. This is the time for weeping. 
So maybe those of you who are wondering how to deal with death, you say to yourself, I'm going to make time for mourning, and I'm going to make time for weeping. So let's carry on again back to Genesis 23 with the death of Sarah. This is a rather long story, but it's really very interesting, the trouble that he goes to and the consequences that it has for the rest of the patriarchs as well. So carrying on Genesis 23, I'm taking up at verse 3. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke to them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth. You see, they're all acting as witnesses for this conversation. Even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, Now, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He's showing appreciation, yet he's going to say, no, that's not what I want. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. All the people are witnessing, saying, if you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Because he wants to own it. He doesn't want to have it ever come up later as an issue. Well, you never paid me kind of thing. He wants to buy the field. He doesn't want it as a gift. Then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. So he's named his price. He understands. And Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. And this is, in fact, the first instance we have in the Bible of the land of Israel actually being deeded over, historical record of the deed that we can say that the Jews owned the land 5,000 years ago. So I take an interest in this word in Hebrew, Machpelah, Remember this, this field, which was in Machpelah, uh, because it comes from a word that means doubled over. Now, this is just Michelleology. I haven't read any um, scripture theologians saying anything about this, but for me, when I read about a place of burial 
being named doubled over. I'm thinking of the lamentation of the grief that causes us to be doubled over when we're grieving. The grief and the lamentation of Abraham. He's doubled over. He's humbled by the pain of his loss. So that's what I think of when I hear Machpelah. Okay, now we're going to skip over two chapters to Genesis 25, and now we're going to read about the death of Abraham. We're going to read Genesis 25, verses 7 through 10. Genesis 25, 7 through 10. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Now skip up to the death of Isaac at Genesis 35. Isaac is the son of Abraham. We're skipping over to Genesis 35 now, just two verses, verses 28 and 29. Genesis 35:28 and 29. And it goes like this. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we've got something new to learn here, both from the death of Abraham and the death of Isaac. Isaac and Ishmael were not the best of friends, but they came together in harmony without any mention of any strife to bury their father Abraham. Again here we have Jacob and Esau, who were at enmity for a while before they reconciled. These two twins who were at enmity coming together in harmony with no mention of strife to bury their father, Isaac. So there's another lesson we can learn. When we come together, do we want to create a ruckus at the funeral? Do we want to fight with the family when we're memorializing? Or do we want to have peace with our brothers and sisters and memorialize the dead in a way which is peaceful and honoring. Okay, we're going to move on to the death of Jacob. I do. Uh, it doesn't make mention here, but you're going to read about it when we read about the death of Jacob, that Isaac and his wife Rebekah are also buried at Machpelah. So here we have, let's skip forward again to Genesis 49 now. Genesis 49 for the death of Jacob. We're going to read a long passage here from Genesis 49, 29, all the way into Genesis 50, verse 13. 49, 29 to Genesis 50, 13, because I want you to see the trouble that is gone to for the honoring of Jacob, who is the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he, Jacob, charged them, his sons, and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field of Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. 
There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. Jacob's going on and explaining here. They buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah there. And he buried his wife Leah. He says, there I buried Leah. So Jacob's wife Leah is already buried in the cave at Machpelah. He goes on. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph, which is his next to youngest son, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. That was one of the Egyptian methods of dealing with the dead. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, 40 days were required for it. So if you're wondering, well, okay, I'm going to give time for weeping and mourning. They're giving 40 days. For such is the period required just for the embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him, how many? 70 days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die. In my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. This is a big company here. The elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt. This is a huge company. Huge. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. They basically left their flocks and herds and they all went up. There also went up with him both the chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Misraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Misraim means Egyptians. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. So there we have another clue. Do what you promised. Do what you promised. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. So all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Abraham's wife Sarah, Isaac's wife Rebekah, Jacob's wife Leah, they're all buried in the same cave. And we see a process, don't we? We see burial, we see weeping, we see mourning, we see lamenting, we see embalming, we see traveling great distances, we see many people giving honor, and we see things that taking really a lot of time with it, giving it its due honor. I'd like to read you a little quote from a writer by the name of Mark Brogop. And he wrote a book about lamentation. Not the book of lamentations in the Bible, but the act of lamentation. And here's what he says. 
Finding an explanation or a quick solution for grief, while an admirable goal, can circumvent the opportunity, opportunity afforded by lament, which is to give a person permission to wrestle with sorrow instead of rushing to end it. Walking through sorrow without understanding and embracing the God-given song of lament can stunt the grieving process. The writer closes by saying, I came to see lament as a helpful gift from the Lord. So back to that word, machpelah. You know, when you're doubled over, what, what does this position also remind you of? Bowing, bowing in worship and humility before the Lord. As we bow before the Lord, we're, we're doubled over. And I think there's a relationship there because the pain and the helplessness of loss, the grief, brings us face to face with the awesome power of God. And it makes so clear how little we are and how great he is. And it does something else. It allows us to receive the comfort of God. We read in the Beatitudes when Jesus is speaking the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. When we're willing to humble ourselves before the Lord because we're so struck with grief. When we see the greatness of God in the humility of grief. This allows us to receive comfort from him. Uh, and our, our, I, I, I wrote here, our morning brings us directly into the experience of praise and thanksgiving as God transforms it into dancing. He tells us in Psalm 30, O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my morning into dancing. He has the, the power to do that. And it's not going to be quick, right? It's not like he took some person who was grieving and mourning and he suddenly, oh, I'm going to dance now. It's not trite. We know that it's long, it's slow, it's a process that takes time. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. The sackcloth was the grieving clothing. My soul may praise you and not be silent. I will give thanks to you forever. And we see this happen in the story of Job, who of course was uh, a victim of a great, great deal of adversity. A lot of uh, crushing losses hit him. When we uh, first encountered Job in his adversity, his friends can't even recognize him. He's so messed up looking. They don't even recognize him. They, his friends come. They lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe and threw dust on their heads toward the sky as an expression of of their grief. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. Now there's another question for you when you're grieving or when you're witnessing someone else grieving. Can you just sit with them quietly? Can you take the time to just be there with them? Just be silent. I mean, the worst thing is giving the good suggestions or quoting Romans 8.28. It just doesn't come out right. How about just sitting for seven days without speaking a word because you see that the one who's suffering is really in need of just having you be there. Can we do that? Just be present. Don't worry about the uncomfortable silences. 
And we know in the story of Job, he did lament. He did grieve. He expressed himself through his whole process, getting over these terrible losses. He lost his children. He lost everything he had. And at the end of the ordeal, you know, he has come to encounter face-to-face. He actually sees God through it. And he is able to be comforted. And through that, God is able to restore him. Job says at the very end of the book, keep in mind, you know, this this didn't happen overnight. Job is 42 chapters long. It takes forever to read it. It's long. It's these, these discussions going back and forth, the friends and, the, and Job answering, and then God gets involved in the conversation. It's a long book. This didn't happen overnight. But what happened is that Job was able to say, I have declared that which I did not understand. In other words, I was speaking out of my mouth. I didn't know what I was saying. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here now, Job says to God, I will speak. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. In other words, we don't understand why we lose this person or that person. We don't understand why these terrible things happen. But I will ask you, God, and you will instruct me because you know. He goes on, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And Job, Job's fortunes were restored. He lived 140 years. He got a whole new family, 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, seven sons, three daughters. And he died as an old man, full of age, restored and comforted. Even without the restoration, I believe he would have been comforted because he encountered God. He saw God. Now, I'm just going to switch gears for a second and talk about myself. Um, In 2013, I lost three people who were very important to me. One was uh, my pastor, one was my father, and one was my mother. And they all died within a few months of one another. And um, I remember the memorial service for pastor. I remember taking the time to go visit him in the hospital before he died. And I had three things I wanted from him. I wanted to ask his forgiveness for when I had been, you know, uppity and unruly under his leadership. And he forgave me. I wanted to uh, ask for his blessing, and he blessed me. And I wanted to thank him for all he had given to me. And he accepted my thanksgiving. And it was very important to me. It enabled me to be more at peace with his dying. And we had a memorial here. My dad... We had a memorial service, and I spoke at it. And Actually, Jerry and I um, lived with him and my stepmom for three days and helped him in his last few moments. My mom, um, we lived with her for two weeks in her home. And, uh, and then after she died, we had a memorial service. And um, my sister and I had a really fun time setting up a table at the memorial service that anybody who knew my mom would recognize. It was her dining room table. And the way she kept her dining room table was so just absolutely her and nobody else. The things that were on it, her, her turpentine for her paint supplies, her paintbrushes and her razor blades over here and her little pills over there and a, and a croissant and, and a cup of half-drunk coffee with milk and a spoonful of cream, I, I mean a spoonful of sugar. I knew how she liked her coffee. And, and there was the New York Times crossword puzzle, which she pulled out in full. She never missed a word every week. And there it was. 
And, and I mean, we just made it look like it was her house at this memorial service. It was really sweet, and everybody kind of appreciated it. Um, so here's the thing. When those three people died, I had very well-worn paths for processing the grieving that was necessary to, to go through losing these three people in one year. There was a handbook from hospice. I got calls from the hospice staff checking in on me. They offered support groups. I could talk with my sister. My husband was there. We talked it through. Friends gathered around me. I wrote poetry. I, you know, there are things you do. You have your memorial and all that. Some 20 years prior, there was a death. There was no memorial service. Uh, I didn't know this person at all. There were no words of wisdom at a service. There were no friends to comfort. There was no gathering around, no support groups, no handbooks, no calls from hospice. No talk about it at all. In fact, there was nothing but silence. And that was, you think I'm talking about somebody I don't know, but that was actually the person that I was carrying in my womb. And I had an abortion. And that person did not receive any honoring at all. I didn't even have a name for her. I think she's a her. I don't know what she was. Her, him. I am deeply convinced that with 50 million abortions in this country that have occurred since Roe v. Wade in, two, in uh, 1973, yeah, maybe there's a bunch of women who've gone through their process. Maybe there's some women who don't need to go through a process because they don't care or they're perfectly at peace with what they did. But out of 50 million, do you think maybe there might be some people who haven't really gone through a grieving process over the loss of a child. I'm deeply concerned about these women and that's why I'm writing the book, to help them go through it. As some of you know, I've been collecting testimonies and stories from women who've been touched by abortion and I'm going to read you one of them now. This person says, Women in my culture will be more reluctant to talk about abortion because of the shame. Less likely to get help because of the stigma of therapy and counseling. Does this sound familiar to any of you? We're more likely to push it down and just keep moving. And why do we push it down? We push it down because it's shameful. It's terribly, terribly shameful. It's a shameful sin. And my object is not to shame anyone. My object is to point people to somebody who can help. What do you do when you have shamefully sinned? And this is where I invite those of you who have no contact with abortion. You have other shameful sins. I don't know what they are and I don't want to know. But what do we do when we've committed a shameful sin? Is there anybody out there who can comfort us? Okay, no, I wasn't talking to you. Is there anyone who can comfort us in the midst 
of the suffering that we go through as a consequence of our sin. I'm going to read you some words from Jesus. He's in the temple court, and some people bring to him a woman who is actually, they've caught her in the act of adultery. Can you imagine that? They, they must have actually literally dragged her out of a bed. Caught in the act of adultery, I'm sure it was more than shameful. Utterly humiliating. And they throw her down at his feet. I'm reading now from John 8, 3 through 11. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out, one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Listen to these amazing words of Jesus. She has been caught in the act, literally dragged out of a bed and thrown into the middle of a court with men all around who are prepared to stone her. She has broken the law. And Jesus says to her, I do not condemn you. Just don't do it anymore. Just don't have any more abortions. I don't condemn you. You know, he's not here to condemn. We read that in uh, John 3.17, right after John 3.16, which we love to read. We read after that, God did not send the Son into the world. Let's do the whole thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. He's not here to condemn us. He's here to save us. Now, if you can imagine Jesus at the cross, willing to forgive people who were killing him, do you think he's going to condemn you or that girl who went to the abortion clinic and got rid of the child she was carrying or her boyfriend who strong-armed her into it, or her parents who pressured her into it, or her friend who encouraged her in it. Whatever. Abortion touches so many different lives in so many different ways. If he could say of those who were killing him, they don't know what they're doing. 
Please forgive them. I think he can say to us, these people don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them, Father. Because while we were yet sinners, we read in Romans, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, this is how he demonstrates his love for us. And he he did tell her, don't do it anymore. Repent. Remember his first message was repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. So, I would like to gently encourage those of you who have been involved in any way in abortion to repent. And don't do it anymore. And turn to the only one who who offers love without condemnation and has the power to save you from your sins so you don't have to carry the burden, the weight of the things you've done. He carries them for you. And it may be that you might be one of these people. And, you know, I'm very aware as I'm speaking today that I'm not just speaking to you. I know Pastor's aware of this when he's preaching. I'm not just speaking to you. Pastor will be posting this on the website. There may be a woman, you know, two years from now who chances on this message. She needs to hear this too. So I'm not necessarily talking to you. I'm talking to somebody. And I say, take the time to look at what you've done. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. It's so near to you. You have one in Jesus who is not here to condemn you. Think about what you've done. Take the time to grieve. Have a memorial. Honor the dead. Honor the one that was made in God's image, whom you were given the responsibility to carry. But like me, you squandered that and you threw it away. I want to encourage you to look more deeply, to cut through the stigma, and to come to healing and peace on the other side. Peace with God, peace with yourself, which I have. I have now. I struggled for many years, and I now have peace. And I have a full experience of the forgiveness of Jesus. I'm going to end by reading a psalm. Uh, but I, I do want to say I, I have a couple, just one of these left. I gave one out this morning. But it's just a questionnaire. If you are in any way touched by abortion in your life and you would be willing to be part of my book and you could, you know, sort of answer some questions and just just give me some words so that the women who read my book will be helped by your testimony and your story. And it'll be completely anonymous. There's more than one. I can get you more next week, but I have just one now. And, and I thank you for that because I want, I, I crave to see these women healed. And again, it's just a matter of statistics. In 50 million abortions, surely there are some women who are still suffering. And not just the women, the dads, too. I'm not writing this book just for women. I'm writing it for the dads as well, everybody. I'm going to read you from Psalm 119, various verses. And let's consider it a prayer. So just bow your heads with me now. 
My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. I'm going to read that again. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Amen. I'm just going to end by saying that in the Jewish tradition, we have something called the Mourner's Kaddish. And it comes up every High Holy Days in the, in the fall. And it is a recitation in Hebrew. And it acknowledges, like if we were sitting in a synagogue right now, and I were about to recite the Mourner's Kaddish, I would say, how many people, whoever has lost someone in the last year, stand up? And that person stands up, and then the mourner's cottage is read in honor of that person's loved one who was lost. I want to tell you something about that mourner's cottage. There's not a single word about death, about grief, about mourning and weeping. It's all about who God is. It is a wonderful focus on the awesome nature of God, his perfection of judgment, his perfect righteousness, his justice, all his qualities to which we look, like Job, who was humbled. He was in that machpelah position, and that brought him face to face with God. He was humbled to where he could meet God and really see him. And that is what the mourner's cottage does. It puts us in a right relationship with God because we remember who he is and we don't dwell on what we did because what we did is covered by his blood if we choose to accept it and say, yes, Lord, I take that. I receive that. That's my message for today. Thank you. As we come to the conclusion, I think one of the things that I'm so grateful for is I've done a lot and talked a lot about abortion on the radio and here and and when we just look at if we look at sin, when we just look at the forgiveness of God that no matter what we've done <laughs> it's under the blood of Christ you can't point to anything in your life to where you say that God didn't forgive me or can't Every single thing. Now, there may be some embarrassing situations, but everything is under the blood of Christ. What could be more embarrassing to have let that man go and to bring the woman by herself? He was guilty, too. <laughs> they set it up. But God forgives us for all sin. And we just ought to be grateful that you stand to your feet. How awesome and wonderful God is, and God can keep secrets. He can say, I'm not bringing out, you are forgiven. It's under the blood. Lord, as we leave this place today, we want to thank you for just the presentation of the word of God. How the 
the deaths that she spoke about in Genesis and the Machpelah laying those being placed in the tomb. Never saw that before in that way. Today, Lord, we pray that we will, when we sin, to repent and to turn. Thank you that you have offered forgiveness, the one sacrifice that covers all sin. We bless your name today. Now, will you keep us? And as we celebrate and, and give thanksgiving to you for what you have provided, we look at the land, and the feasting, and the fellowship, and the family, and the friends. We pray that, God, that you will bless this Thanksgiving holiday season, that we will reflect on the goodness of God. Those that may not have family, that they'll be able to connect with others during this time. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.